All right. Hey, everybody. Hey, let's turn to Genesis chapter 10. We're going to try to cover two chapters tonight, uh, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, uh, mainly because Genesis 10 is all genealogy. Uh, So it would be a pretty dry night if we just stayed there. So Genesis chapter 10. Uh, you will need to turn there if you got a Bible because we're going to have other stuff on the board tonight, some maps and things like that. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, maybe get it on your phone or whatever. Hey, um, let me start by giving a word of advice to all the young people in the room, but maybe there's some older people in the room that need to hear it. Don't interrupt a good storyteller, a good one. Sometimes you need to interrupt a bad storyteller because it's just bad, bad. But if somebody's a really good storyteller, let them go. Like they may get some details out of order. Uh, They may, you know, say one thing before another because they're usually building suspense. And a really good storyteller, man, it's so good listening to somebody who really knows how to do it, who knows how to build the suspense. And it's really frustrating when someone interrupts a good storyteller and is like, oh, I, I, actually, that, that part actually happened. And you're like, shut up. Because, like, you know, like a good movie, movies do this. They don't tell you the, the whole, they don't give a spoiler right at the front and be like, well, timeline-wise, it all happened like this. Everybody, everybody's got a friend that ruins movies for them, right? Or Eric Potter. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Stop ruining movies. So Eric Potter ruins movies. And uh, this one time I I told him, I'm not going to say the name of the movie or I would ruin it for you. But I was telling him I was watching this movie and I was like, I'm about halfway through. And he's like, oh, are you to the part where he realizes that none of his friends are real? And I was like, dadgummit, man. No, I'm not to that part. But now I'm not ever going to get there because you just ruined the whole movie for me. So all good movies, good stories, sometimes there's a little bit of suspense building. That's how Genesis 10 and 11 happens. There's a twist in here where you're like, hold up, hold up, they're getting this out of order. Yes, and it's on purpose. Genesis chapter 10. All right, you remember where we're at? The whole earth was just destroyed with the flood. We had that story and the patience of Noah and the eight that waited out in the, in the ark and they waited and waited and waited, and finally they hit dry land. Remember last week we, t- we talked about how God made his covenant with Noah and put the sign of the covenant, his bow, in the clouds. And so basically now you got just this tiny group of people that's been given this command, go be fruitful, be multiply. It's almost like a second Adam. Remember, this is the guy that probably... We know at least his daddy, uh, Lamech, has looked forward to Noah saying, hey, this is the one. This is the one that's going to give us rest. This is the one that's going to give us relief from this curse, thinking he may be the serpent crusher. So all these hopes were on Noah, and there is a sort of new beginning, because here in Genesis chapter 10, we see this is how one family becomes all families in the earth. So let's pick up in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. All right, pause for a second. If you remember from our very first uh, sermon on the book of Genesis, whenever you see that phrase, these are the generations of, what does that signal? You remember? It's a new episode. It's called a toledote. There's 11 of these throughout uh, the book of Genesis. So when you see this, you should know one episode is just finished and one episode is just starting when it says these are the generations of. Now tonight, we're actually going to go, this is episode four, if you will. Uh, so we're going to go through episode four, episode five, and we're going to start episode six. All right, so th- these different toledotes. So, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And here is sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Sons were born to them after the flood. If you got your Bible, it should be about on the same page. Look back at chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. It told us this was going to happen. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, or the whole earth was populated from this. And so this chapter is gonna give us the how. It's gonna tell us exactly how this is done. Now, it's gonna be in a genealogy form, but it's not a straight up genealogy. Uh, I heard, um, was it last night we went to the Andrews basketball game, and Jed, my son, was talking to another one of his friends, and I, I didn't hear the whole conversation. I just overheard they were talking about, and Jed was like, hey, I was reading in my Bible this morning, and they were doing the, uh, the countdown to Jesus, you know, the countdown to Jesus, and I, and I was like, what? And he's like, you know, where they, where they do the father and the son, the father and the son, the father and the son. I was like, that's a great way to think of genealogies. It's a countdown to Jesus. It's perfect. Anyway, so this genealogy, most genealogies go like dad to son, dad to son, dad to son, with some, like, actual dates or numbers. This is a weird one. In chapter 5, we went through one of those genealogies. This one, it mentions, like, people, whole people groups. It'll sub in for a dad, it'll sub in an entire people group. So you can't trace this one exactly. Because what it's doing here, a lot of people call this the table of nations. This is a listing of all the peoples of the world at the time. Because all the people of the world are descendants from Noah. So he's going to go through each one individually. Verse 2. The sons of Japheth are first. Now, when it's interesting, because when he says these are the generations of Noah... Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, when he gives us their sons, he's going to reverse it because he's saving the best to last. All right? The sons of Japheth. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. I'm going to spare you guys the hours I went in and looked at all these people groups and thought, is there anything significant here? Is there anything significant here? No. I'm going to spare you. Uh, well, will you put that map up there? This, I think, uh, makes it really simple. So basically, if you look in this, hey, that box right there, that's kind of Israel, right? And so basically you can see how all the people groups spread out. So up here, you might not be able to see that, uh, the black on red, but this is Japheth's crew. So these are mostly uh, these coastland peoples. So they're up here on the coast spreading all the way into Greece. So these are the ones that are furthest away from Israel, all right? So we'll move on. Verse 6, we can, we can just leave that map up there. Next is going to go the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So look right in here. All this is the sons of Ham here. You see a little bit of Ham down here in this Arabian Peninsula, but they're really focused right here. This little side bit gives the uh, kind of like a detailed look at Israel. And here you see a lot of names we've seen before, like the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jeb Jebusites. These are guys that Israel is going to have a problem with later on. They're going to be close uh, to Israel geographically. All right. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. It's going to pause right here. Now, Nimrod was the first on earth to be called a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, 
Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. That's going to be important here in a second. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt followed Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Amen and amen. This is hard. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, Amorites, Gergesites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, the Arvites, the Z- I'm just going to skip, uh, and the territory of the Canaanites. This is interesting. It stops giving the names of the Canaanites and starts giving the territory. Why? Because this is the land they're going to inhabit in a little while. The territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, by their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. So he kind of gives this little phrase at the end when he's like, all right, Japheth had all these kids and they lived up here. Oh no, did this die? Mm. We don't use it very often, so we don't really change the batteries. Um, Okay, so um, Japheth lives up there with all the red folks up there. And then the green area is Ham, and the yellow is Shem, all right? So we haven't got to Shem yet, but our genealogy has taken a quick pause to look at Nimrod. So Nimrod is this first mighty man that's on the earth, and he apparently was super, super famous as a great hunter in that day. And so uh, he's said to be a mighty hunter before the Lord, which some folks will say the Lord's blessed him, but most folks believe that uh, it's really like, openly before the Lord as in rebelling against the Lord. In fact, his name, Nimrod, means we're going to rebel. We will rebel. So most people say that he's the one that built the Tower of Babel, since you got, he's uh, from his, his king, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, um, though it's clearly a group effort that we'll see in a minute. Now, there have been wild speculations about who this guy Nimrod is. Some folks are saying he's this God figure in Babylonian deities. Uh, some folks say he's Hammurabi himself. Um, all we know is that he's a great leader. Now, it's funny because, you know, the name Nimrod, have you ever heard like an older person be like, that guy's a Nimrod? And you're, you're like, how did that become an insult? Uh, well, it, it really is because of the, the thought that he fathered uh, or that he's the one that founded the Tower of Babel that it was such a foolish um, effort to put in the Tower of Babel that people kind of call him a fool. A lot of people believe, and this is false, but that a great theologian, Bugs Bunny, was actually the one to, to spread the name because he's, he called Elmer Fudd the great hunter, Nimrod, and that that's how it spread. And in fact, you did see a popularity spike in 1938 when that was start to be used. In- interesting side note. Anyway, verse 21 All right, we've talked about Japheth, talked about Ham, now Shem. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. It pauses. For in his days, the earth was divided. Now, a lot of people believe some people believe that in his days, the continents divided. I don't believe that. I think he's saying in, the, in his days, the people were divided, as in the Tower of Babel. His brother's name was Joktan. Joktan followed Almodad, Shilif, and Hazar Maveth. 
and it goes on, uh, extends down to tell the, the area, and it, it finishes out this whole bit uh, saying, verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So it's kind of this inclusio. You got verse one that's saying, hey, Noah had sons and they spread out. Verse 32 is saying it happened. This is kind of the bookend that these nations spread. And so we see, man, God's grace is evident from the survival of sinful men from the flood. Here you have these people that are spreading out all over. And, and Shem's line, let's pause for a second. Shem's line's gonna pick up in a couple of minutes, but there's an interruption in the story by the great storyteller. His line's gonna pick up in a couple verses because this Shem's line is gonna build kind of to Abraham. But we know down the line that it's, it's going to be the line of Seth that stretches all the way to Christ. And we see that in Luke 3. And this is the purpose of the table of nations, to show back to back to back to back Christ all the way back to Adam. That's the purpose of the table of nations. But for now, this genealogy is gonna pause, all right? Verse or I'm sorry, chapter 11, let's go to verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Anything weird there to you? Yeah, the language part. Because it just said, what about chapter 10, verse five, where it said, Japheth's sons, they spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nation. Uh, yep. What about verse 20, where it says that Ham's sons, by their clans, by their languages, by their nations. What about verse 31, where Shem's sons, it says these are the sons of Shem, by their clans, by their languages. What's the deal? Because here it's saying the whole earth had one language and one and the same words. We know what's coming. We know the Tower of Babel's coming, but it's interesting how the Bible puts it. Now, some people here will scream, contradiction in the Bible. Nah, man, he's not an idiot. He just said this two verses ago, said all these people by their languages, now the earth had one language. He's a good storyteller. He's gonna pause. He just showed us this spread that went all over the map, and he's gonna pause to make a theological point. I think it's scratching at a theological point. What, why did he order it like this? I think because as we're reading it, we're tempted to think that the flood cured the sin problem. You see what I'm saying? God said, spread out, and they're like, yes, sir, and they all spread out, and you read in, in uh, chapter nine, it's like from the three sons of Noah, the whole earth was populated, and you're like, oh, man, everybody is obeying. This, the flood worked. See, after the flood, everybody got the message. They started spreading out. They started being fruitful and multiplying. Maybe the, maybe the flood actually cured the sin problem, except the genius of the Holy Spirit uh, storytelling has already given us the real nagging, bothersome story about Noah getting drunk. And did that bother anybody else? Because it's so abrupt. You know, it's like this great covenant with Noah, and he's the only one that's found favor on the earth. And then he plants this vineyard, and he's back to work in the land, and then he's drunk and naked in his tent, and it ends so abruptly where cursed be Ham, blessed be the other two, Noah dies. It's unsettling because you start thinking, okay, so if, the flood was to cure sin, and then Noah sinning. What was that? What was the flood for? What, what are we What are we doing here? 
nothing if we're paying attention. Go back, chapter 8. If you got a second, turn back to chapter 8, uh, verse 21 and 22. Chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. God's covenant with Noah. Noah steps out the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Pause. Is that weird? Neither again will I strike down, any every, uh, strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never stop. You see, if we're paying attention way back in chapter 8, we know as soon as Noah gets off and does this, before he gets drunk in his tent, we know the well, flood didn't fix anything. Because if we're, if we're not careful, we're tempted to read these verses and think that God is impulsive. God got so mad at their sin, he blew up and just like, I'm gonna kill them all. And then, then he smelled their, the sacrifices after the flood and was like, oh man, I wish I hadn't have done that. Man, I'm not gonna do that anymore. It seems impulsive to us. It's not that. We know that God had planned this since before the beginning, but the flood didn't cure people. God, it's interesting that God says right after the flood that man's still sinful. And remember, he said, what was the reason he gave for destroying mankind? He said this phrase, because every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. That's what he said back in chapter six. That's why he's flooding the earth. So here we are, chapter 8, and he's saying, I'm never going to flood the earth again because every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What is that? Because here we're hitting the, the Tower of Babel story, and we see that post-flood folks are just as sinful as pre-flood folks. Why in the world did he flood the earth if it didn't fix the earth? You ever thought about that? It bothered me for a long time. We'd have to say either that this is a huge failure on God's part or that God is preparing for something greater in the future. He's not just emotional. He planned this out before time began. I think the flood's two things. I think the flood is, number one, it is judgment for the time. Sin deserves judgment. This is like the ground swallowing the Israelites. This is like Uzzah reaching out and touching the ark. Sin deserves judgment. That's enough. That's enough reason to flood the earth. But I think God in his grace, he not only gives us judgment with the flood, but he gives us grace because it's a demonstration for the future, for us. I think there's three ways. Uh, John Piper gave these three ways um, in a sermon that he did, but three ways the New Testament sees the flood. Number one, the New Testament writers see the flood as foreshadowing the final judgment with fire. They see the flood as a foreshadowing of the final judgment. Second Peter Three, three through seven says, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they did since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Three ways the New Testament sees the flood. Number one, it's a foreshadowing of future judgment. Number two, the ark is foreshadowing of final salvation. First Peter 3. 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the third reason, our third way I think the New Testament sees the flood. They see the days of Noah as typical of the last days before the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eaten and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. So stay awake because you don't know what day the Lord you're com- the, what day your Lord is coming. That's three ways the New Testament sees the flood. Man, y'all listen, this bothered me for a long time until I realized the flood is not a cure for sin, and it wasn't meant to be. It was not meant to cure sin. Just like all the Old Testament stories, it begs for closure. It begs for an end. The flood is judgment and grace, just like the curses. When Adam and Eve are cursed in the garden, it's judgment. You will die, but it's also grace. The flood, judgment, and grace. We're going to see in a second the Tower of Babel is judgment and grace. But you think about it. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is judgment and grace, but it doesn't fix the problem. None of these stories here, all of the Old Testament begs for completion. All of the Old Testament begs for a cure for sin. It all begs for the one who's going to crush the serpent. All of the Old Testament, even the Tower of Babel, it points to Jesus. Because there is no cure for sin outside of Jesus' blood. That only a spotless lamb could pay. Only the perfect one could drink the flood of God's wrath and actually enact change. See, it's not just Jesus that bore God's wrath. You think about the people in the flood, they bore God's wrath, but they deserved it. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved. And man, the great exchange happens. You see, the only way the flood would have solved the, the sin problem is if everyone died. All of the sinful die. But at the cross is judgment and grace. But the judgment goes to Jesus and the grace and his perfection and the Holy Spirit comes to us and that fixes the problem permanently. That is the cure for sin. No sinfulness survives that. Sinfulness survived the flood, but no sinfulness survives that. All the sinful die with Christ, and now he lives in us, and that's the fix. All right, let's go to chapter 11. Man, we're going to have to buzz through this. All right, chapter 11, it says in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. All right, so we're going to see how this great spread at Babel was judgment and grace. Now, this whole passage, I wish I had the time. If I had three sermons on this, it'd be awesome. But I wish I had the time to show you how beautiful this is in Hebrew. It's, it's like this mirroring language that kind of mocks the story. It's, it's really, really interesting. But the scene set in verse 1, and we should have like a whoa moment as soon as it says, basically, it says, they found a plain in Shinar and settled down. We should automatically be like, Uh-oh, shouldn't do that because the command has been not settle but spread. Verse three, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let's burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. All right, so Nimrod is given credit for being the architect of the Tower of Babel, but it's really all of the people that are working together. It says they said to one another, and what they're saying is they want their name to be great instead of the great name of Yahweh. They're ignoring the divine command to spread out. They're saying, we want to settle. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Think about it. Look at the verses here. These folks had four different aims. They aimed to do four things. Number one, they aimed to build a city. Number two, they aimed to build a tower. Number three, they aimed to make a name for themselves. And number four, their aim was not to be dispersed. They did not want to spread out. Those are the four goals. We're going to make a city. We're going to make a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves, and we won't have to spread out. But really, if you think about it, it's really only, it's more like desires and solutions. We don't want to be dispersed, so we'll build a city. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's not four separate. They're, they correlate. It's two and two. We don't want to be dispersed. There's a desire, and here's the solution, so we're going to build a city. Here's another desire. We want to make a name for ourselves. And here's the solution. So we'll build a tower. You see what I'm saying? The city and the tower are just outward expressions of inward sin. We're going to build. Here's our desires. We don't want to do what God said. He says go. We say stay. To that end, we're going to build us a city. I'll tell you what. We're also, we want to build a great name for ourselves. How can we do that? We're gonna build the biggest tower the world has ever seen. We're gonna build a giant monument to our own greatness. Okay, before we get too hard on them, we do the same thing, right? We don't wanna follow God, so we desire to make a name for ourselves. Our towers and cities just look different, really. These are the desires of our heart. We desire security and fame, truly. Whatever fame looks like in your circle, we desire security and fame, so we build towers. We build careers. We build reputations. We build all sorts of things for the glory of me, not for the glory of Yahweh. All right, what's important in this story is, when I was a kid, I used to think the Tower of Babel was like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, where they're like, let's build a tower that goes all the way up, and if we do it high enough, we can actually break through heaven, and hey, it's God and angels. Like, it's not like that. It's not the, the Jack and the Beanstalk story. These men want a monument to their own greatness. They want everyone all around to say, my gosh, they're powerful. They're so great. Many believe the tower is more like a ziggurat. You know what that is? I have a picture of it on the board. That's, that's an actual structure. So that's a ziggurat in Ur. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because it's ridiculous. But basically, this ziggurat, it's, it's an ancient site. If you look at the top, it's, it's actually the old building that's kind of broken down. But you remember when we studied through Daniel, there was a king named Nabonidus. He rebuilt this. And then Saddam Hussein rebuilt it again. So there's a lot of pictures of U.S. soldiers when they went over there to Iraq on the stairs of this thing. So this is the, uh, this is the Ziggurat of Ur. The other picture is, uh, is mainly like a computer rendering of maybe how it looked in the day. But it's basically, these ziggurats are meant to be a pathway to the gods. So, uh, so you can see that by the way some of them are named. They have long, stupid names, but what the names mean are, there's a couple of them. One of them means the temple of the foundations of heaven and earth. Another one is the temple which links heaven and earth. 
Another one is the temple of the stairway to pure heaven. Now, most of these things were filled with dirt, so they're actually, there's not much to them, you know, but there's just a little room at the top. Now, some of them had a temple at the bottom, but most of them are just filled, and there's a little room at the top, and it's called the gate of the gods. And there, it's, it's said they could interact with the gods or that the God would live. So there may be an element of pagan worship of sorts here, but we know for sure that these guys are wanting to build a name for themselves. Great, great tower. Verse five. I love this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's almost like patronizing. It's like, we're gonna build this great tower, a monument to ourselves. And it's like, and God hang on, I got to come down there. I, you know, he comes down and is like, oh, that is great, guys. Look at y'all. Y'all figured out bricks. Look, that's so cute. I mean, I, that is great. That, that's, that's something. I love the wordplay. In God's view, it's puny. It's not great, it's foolishness. God's not wringing his hands in heaven and being like, oh my gosh, they're building such a big tower. The wordplay is, is beautiful here. Remember, God's not impressed with man's greatness. He's not impressed with riches or power or cities or countries or armies. The things that impress man do not impress God. Verse six, the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. When I used to read this verse when I was little, I used to think God was threatened. Oh my gosh, they build this tower. They're gonna rebel against me. God's God's not threatened. This is language like uh, way back in the Garden of Eden, you remember when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and then he's like, all right, we gotta kick them out of here before they eat out of that tree of life. Not that they were gonna become gods, it's grace that they wouldn't live forever in their sin. And here he's saying basically, all right, if we don't intervene, mankind's just gonna keep on setting up monument to monument after monument to his own greatness. This is grace, this is grace. Nothing that he proposes is gonna be impossible to him. They'll just keep on building shrines to themselves. Verse seven. Come, let us go down, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over the face of all the earth and they left, I'm sorry, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. It's Trinitarian language once again, look at verse seven, come let us go down. It's Trinitarian language, absolutely, but it also is wordplay on the men who said, come let us make a city. Come let us make a city. He's like, come let us go down. And then he has this simple, elegant, graceful plan to, to, to thwart their plans. He's not gonna destroy them with a flood, he's just gonna confuse them. Think about it. God could have just destroyed the tower, but they would have likely built it back. Such an elegant plan. But imagine, imagine these guys working on this ziggurat and imagine they're building this temple and all of a sudden, all of these people have been working together, they got these plans and all of a sudden the guy next to you just starts blabbering. He's like, and you're like, all right, stop, man. Just hand me that brick, you know, just give me that mortar. And he's like, and you're like, dude, for real, stop. And he's acting all confused with you. And first, you probably think they're playing a joke on you. Like, all right, I see what y'all done now. All right, all right, I'm going to go get the boss, though. I'm going to get the boss. And the boss is like, and you're like, all right, for real, y'all stop. And then you got to imagine after a while, people are getting mad. Probably fights are starting to break out on the side of the thing because they're like, stop. And he doesn't understand him. And they all just get so frustrated. You imagine they're all super mad. And then 
after a while, it's got to be super humbling. They want to build a great name, and now they can't even say the name of their tools. It's ironic. They got to restart. Do they find others that speak their little language group? I don't know. Do they have to start from scratch? How long do they have to be like, ah, just like confused? They made a name for themselves. The name Babel is a play on the word Balal, which means confused. That's the name they made, confusion. But the word Babel is ironic as well because the word Babel actually means the gate of God. Just like the top of the ziggurat, the gate of the gods. And they built the gate of the gods and here it sits in ruin. Self-fame ends in ruin. The Lord continues his plan which cannot be thwarted. The dispersion of all peoples. It's grace and it's judgment. All right, time out. Let me give you all some homework. Share groups uh, or on your own, you need to go back and think about Pentecost. You remember what that is? Pentecost. Acts, was it Acts 2? Acts chapter 2, when all the people were in the room and then all of a sudden they start hearing the people speak in these different languages, these different tongues. You remember that? Brings all the people and then confuses their languages. I want you to go back and think about here at Babel, the language is confused for the spread of these sinful people. There, the language is mixed, but it's understood for the spread of the gospel to sinful people. If you think about Pentecost as a reversal of Babel to where all people, all languages, all people one day will be at the throne, at the gate of God, worshiping together. Beautiful. At that great city. It's homework. Y'all think about that. Let's finish it out. The great storyteller resumes. He's given this spread out. Here's how the nation spread. Oh, by the way, here's why they spread. It wasn't because they were obedient. It's because they were sinful. And here's how Japheth and Ham, here's how they spread out. And he's going to continue with the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, you see a difference already. These are actual ages. So you're talking about actual dad to sons here. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. I'm going to skip a little bit. Shelah had Eber, and then he lived 403 more years. Eber had Peleg, and then Eber lived 430 more years. Peleg had Reu. Reu had Serug. Serug had Nahor, and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. It's our next big character. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This section, chapters 10 and 11, is a bridge between the flood and Abraham between the flood and the patriarchs. Now, this brief history gives us specific dates unlike the last one. Two years after the flood, the history picks up, fulfilling the promise that Noah's descendants will repopulate the earth. Let me give you some fun facts. Shem, you know, Noah's kid, Shem would have lived long enough to see Abram's entire life on earth, if proximity allowed. He lived longer than Abraham did. Abraham died while Shem was still alive. Isn't that crazy? In fact, 
he would have seen 110 years of Isaac's life and 50 years of Jacob's life. So that means if proximity allowed that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could have sat and heard firsthand stories of the flood, they could have compared covenants. Well, the Noahic covenant, my daddy, you know, when he was up there, he did this. Well, you know, for me, I had to walk through the pieces. Isn't that crazy? That's mind-blowing. Terah was Abram's father. Now, Terah would have lived long enough to see the first 135 years of Abram's life. Abram lived 175 years. The name Abram is from father and to be higher exalted. So it may mean the exalted father or he is exalted as to his father or the father, maybe God is exalted. The last few verses. Now, these are the generations of Terah. All right, pause. You see, we've started another two episodes. Verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. New episode. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Foreshadowing. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There's a lot of debate on the different names. We're going to get into this actual story, to the calling here. But we see the family, the family here lived in Ur, in the southern Iraq. The name Chaldeans comes later. Uh, it's a name known to Moses. But they moved from there to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran where Abram's di- dad died. Abram was 135 when that happened. Now, Abram would have left Haran 60 years before his dad died when Abram was 75. Here's an interesting thought. The names of the people in Abram's family reflect moon god worship. What I'm saying is these guys probably weren't worshiping Yahweh. This isn't explicit, but Ur, where they're from, and Haran, where they go, are the two main centers of moon worship, and all their names are linked to worshiping the moon. So some people believe that Abram wasn't saved until Genesis 12. Some other people believe he wasn't saved until Genesis chapter 15. In any case, he's a pagan when we pick him up here in Ur. We'll see more of this next week because Abram's story is fascinating. Last couple thoughts. Man, God responds to sin with judgment at the flood. After the flood, he still responds to sin with judgment at Babel, but he also is setting up the concept of covenant with a people. Both of these are appropriate responses. One of these we like better than the other. Why did God set up the bridge between Noah and Abraham like this with the Babel story interrupting the flow? We've already talked about so that people wouldn't think the flood had cured everything, but if you think back to Noah, you got the problem, which is the sinfulness of man, and immediately the solution back to back, judgment. Here, you have the problem again, sinfulness of man, and the solution, which is grace through covenant, back to back, by positioning it right before chapter 12, which is the Abraham story. God's not going to respond to this sin with judgment alone, but with grace. See, he's going to choose a people. He's going to make promises. See, out of one, Noah, he's going to make multitudes. And then out of the multitudes, he's going to choose one. He's going to make a people for himself, which eventually, we know, That expands to include us. It's beautiful, the way he responds to sin here. So thus concludes the primeval history. Next, 
week, we're going to move into the second major section of Genesis, which is the patriarchal narratives, and learn from the story of Abraham. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. So many unfamiliar place names and events that we, um, it's, it's even hard to imagine these things, Lord, but um, God, I thank you for the brilliant storytelling that you allowed uh, to go on in these two chapters to where, you know, in case we're inclined to believe that the flood actually cured something, God, that we see that you, Jesus, your blood is the only cure for sin. I pray we would take the warnings that the New Testament gives us for the, the reasons for the flood. Lord, I pray we'd, we'd look forward as we, as we begin Abraham's story. I pray we see your grace in it, your grace through covenant, your grace through choosing a sinful people, your grace through a line, a seed through which you, Jesus, came. And thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you have grace on us that you took the judgment that we deserve. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.